as we continue this journey with the Beatitudes, as we continue to look into your word and to your own words, God, and to Jesus' words to us on how to live our lives, on what it means to step into the kingdom, I pray that you would be working in our hearts, that you would be transforming our minds, that we would be uh, being drawn closer to you uh, as individuals and also as a church body, that we would be uh, more and more reflective of who you have put us on earth to be. Amen. So today, uh, we are continuing our series on the Beatitudes by taking a look at the fourth Beatitude. And I'm going to start the morning off by reading from the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, just to give us some context for this statement. We're going to start there, and we're going to keep on working. It's not very long, but we're going to keep on working until we hit that fourth Beatitude. So this is what it says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and they began to teach them. And he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, when I talked about the first beatitude a few weeks back, I mentioned that these statements were set up like a ladder. They were set up like a process that we are going through, that we are encountering. And because we are talking about a spiritual kingdom, these are spiritual steps. And each beatitude very intentionally takes a step up from the one before And now that we are getting towards the halfway point, that structure, I think, is becoming more clear. Hopefully, uh, you are beginning to see this ladder take shape. And today represents a key point in that progression. You see, the first three Beatitudes have been very much about separating ourselves from that which could keep us from the kingdom. A letting go of what we don't need in order to cling to in preparation to cling to what we do need. And as we prepare to talk about hunger and thirst, these first three Beatitudes all call us to abandon different kinds of false hunger that keep us from being ready for this fourth Beatitude. First, we were told to be poor in spirit, to stop thinking that we're good enough, to stop thinking that you don't need help, to stop hungering and thirsting for success, for recognition, For riches. Jesus looked out at the crowd and saw people desperate to be good enough, to act good enough, to live good enough. And Jesus says, Get rid of that need. Get rid of that hunger for good enough. Allow yourself to be poor in spirit and recognize that good comes from God, not our own pursuits. And this can be done by anyone in any life stage. All of us are at the base of this ladder. This is accessible to all. We are all invited into the kingdom through this first step. It starts here, being poor in spirit. And second, we are told to mourn. And maybe a good way to think about this is letting go of holding on, is letting go of our need for control. When we are faced with loss, there can be a temptation to cling, to grab on to whatever we feel like we can control, 
to deny the loss, to tighten up, to clamp down, to regain control however we can. And when we deal with it improperly, grief can wind us up like a toy car until we can't wind anymore, until we are no longer functioning like we're supposed to. And when we tighten, when we coil up like an overtorqued spring, we don't have the ability to truly mourn. Only when we let go, only when we open up and we give up control can we really be released to mourning. And so we see how this builds on poor in spirit. Unless we have truly acknowledged our brokenness, we won't be able to let go of control. And third, we are told to be meek, to give up our hunger for power, for strength. The world tells us that life is a zero-sum game, that for us to win, somebody else has to lose that we need to grab power, that we need to put others down in order for ourselves to be built up, to create lines that divide between culture, between race, between economic class, to establish boundaries that separate us from them. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Jesus tells us to let go of our hunger for power, to let go of our hunger to dominate. The upside-down kingdom denies this dog-eat-dog, king-of-the-hill mentality. Jesus calls us to step out of the rat race. And again, we see how this builds, how this represents another step up. Unless we are live, willing to let go of things, we can never step out of this power-hungry world. Being poor in spirit and mourning our brokenness and the world's brokenness provides the necessary context to stop seeking after power and strength and simply trust God. And so this thing builds and builds on itself. And even in this letting go, even in these first three steps, Jesus is already calling us blessed. But here we take a turn. Now that we have been emptied, Jesus says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst. And hunger is a natural result of being emptied. And before we empty ourselves, we won't hunger for what is actually good for us. The Proverbs say, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool to its folly. And Jeremiah says that we are trying to fill our lives with our own strength. It's like storing our water in broken cisterns. It can never fill. It will leak away. It will not sustain. Jesus says you've been filling your stomachs with trash, with junk. Get rid of that so you will thirst after true water, so that you will hunger for real food, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So today I want to start with a look at what it means, what it looks like to be hungry and thirsty. It's, it's an evocative analogy. It, it draws something out of us as humans to hear that. Uh, and Jesus will have picked that for a reason. It strikes to the core of who we are as humans. Uh, but I think when we hunger and thirst, we can understand those things maybe on a conceptual level. We get the idea of it. But my guess is that there are very few of us in this room who really truly understand what it means to hunger and thirst. Current estimates say that nearly one billion of us on earth are going hungry. Around 10 million people every year die from hunger or hunger-related diseases. That's more than the lives taken by AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. When I think of the idea of hungering and thirsting, I think of how I feel around 11.30 in the office if I forgot to eat breakfast. Or sometimes when I'm feeling hungry, I'll go to open up the fridge or the pantry and I'll stand there with the door open looking around for something to eat and the fridge is full of food. But nothing I'm in the mood for, so I'll just go sit back down. I'm so hungry and there's nothing to eat. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is this relatable? The we only have shreddies but I was in the mood for Honey Nut Cheerios kind of hunger? 
That's a superficial hunger. That isn't true hunger. That's just a bit of discomfort. The hunger that is talked about here, the Greek word that is used, it's the same word that's used for Jesus when he comes out of the desert after 40 days of fasting, after 40 days of wandering around without food. I've done fasts in my life. I think the longest one I ever did was about one week, seven days without food. That felt long. I felt pretty hungry after that. But I did basically nothing that week. I sat around in air conditioning. I had easy access to water whenever I wanted it. Jesus spent 40 days wandering around in the desert, and that word, that hunger, is the same word that is used here. Synonyms for that word are words like famished, ravenous, insatiable. This hunger is like the hunger that is talked about when the prodigal son has lost his money, there is famine in the land, and he is looking at the pig slop with drool in his mouth. So I want to take a few moments, look at this idea of hunger and thirst, and and some of the characteristics that make it such a powerful analogy for our spiritual lives. First of all, hunger is real. It's not a false need. We think we need all sorts of things in our life, all sorts of stuff that could make our life more comfortable or more interesting, houses, cars, trips, gadgets, and sometimes we can act like it's life or death. If you watch a child in a toy store, you understand how a need can sometimes begin to feel like life or death. When you watch a four-year-old flailing in the Lego aisle, screaming like his life is about to end, it is a good reminder to think about our own priorities. Because in a lot of ways, I don't know if we ever grow out of that mentality. It just evolves. We get more mature about it. We maybe get a little more patient about it. But it is amazing how many things I can convince myself that I need that I don't actually need. That I'd actually survive just fine without. Even things as extreme as my house or my job. People live on the streets. They survive. But hunger and thirst... Those are real needs. Those are true needs. We will die if we don't get something to eat or drink. Think about it this way. Every time you have a glass of water, you are restarting a four-day death countdown. That's maybe a little morbid to think about, but every time you drink water, you're flipping the clock to about 100 hours. If you don't have another drop of water in that time, if you don't get medical help, you're dead. Are you doing the math right now? How long has it been since you drank? What's your counter at? 94 hours? 95 hours? Is your tongue feeling a little dry? We need food and water. We need them desperately. Without them, we're done. We're toast. And Jesus is telling us that in his kingdom, righteousness isn't a shiny prize. It's not an interesting side note. It's essential. It's necessary for our spiritual survival. Second, hunger is universal. If you ever find yourself in a speech writing class or at Toastmasters or something like it, they'll probably talk to you a little bit about the types of object uh, lessons or analogies that you use in your writing. And it's very important when you're writing something to read the room. If I was speaking to seniors, I wouldn't try to use Minecraft or or Fortnite or, or dabbing or whatever else is cool with kids these days to illustrate something. And when I speak uh, to our youth, I don't end, generally end up talking about the stock market. If I was speaking at a women's conference, and I, I don't know why I would be speaking at a women's conference, but if I was, I wouldn't use a lot of NHL analogies. 
I draw from my deep pool of uh, spiritual macrame analogies. You'd be surprised. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. To be a good public speaker, you have to tailor your examples to the audience that you're working with. Hunger and thirst is for everyone. It's something you understand intuitively from the moment you're born until the day you die. Jesus is speaking to all of us. It's a message that is as universal as it gets. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so hunger and thirst sets up this point that anybody can grasp. This blessing is meant for all people. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation can immediately understand this. Third, it's fervent. It's intense. We have an eight-week-old baby at home, and maybe he's an especially good example to talk about hunger and thirst because for him, at this stage of life, it's the same impulse. The two are totally intertwined, and he's a bit of a vacuum when it comes to food. Uh, During the day, he demands to be fed, pretty close to every two hours, on the nose. And if there's ever a time for any reason that Aaron is not available to feed him, it is sort of fascinating to watch him click up through stages of frustration. He keeps finding higher gears that I didn't know existed. And if he ever gets more than 10 to 15 minutes past the time when he originally starts to let us know it's time to eat, he's a little ball of rage. His face is red, his fists are clenched hard, his body is tense, his mouth is wide open, screaming. He becomes desperate for food. And as I thought about this sermon and hunger and thirst, and I watched him ramp up through these stages, I wondered what it would be like if we had that same passion for righteousness. If we had that same fire in our belly. Spurgeon wrote that hunger can break through stone walls. A man will do anything when he is hungry because he recognizes that his life depends on it. And Jesus is calling us to that sort of craving for righteousness. Fourth, it's immediate. Uh, This is a slightly different angle on the fervency or intensity of hunger. And when I say that it's immediate, I don't mean that it happens quickly. Rather, I mean that it is totally of and in the present It is right in front of us. It demands our attention. Nothing can distract us from it. In psychology, there is a principle called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Uh, It's a triangle which represents uh, humanity's needs, and I'm not going to go into each of these levels, but the basic principle is this. You can only move up the pyramid if the need underneath it is met. For example, humans cannot meet their need for belonging if they do not feel safe. And they cannot feel safe if they do not have their physiological needs met. And the chief physiological needs are hunger and thirst. According to Maslow, if somebody is hungry or thirsty, they lose all ability to focus on anything else. No other stage in this pyramid matters. When a man is truly hungry, there is no alternative you can present to distract him. You could have him listen to the finest symphony, It would fall on deaf ears. You could give him a mansion, but unless there was a stocked fridge inside, it would mean nothing to him. Nothing else matters if you are hungry. You lose your ability to think about the past or to dream about the future. All you care about is now. One author said that the hungry man's tense is present. 
And when Jesus calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, he is saying nothing is more important than this. If you hunger or thirst for righteousness, you will not be content to wait. You will do what it takes to move forward to righteous living right now. It will be the top priority. In fact, throw away the to-do list until this is done. My fifth point on hunger is that it's a sign of health. Talking to people who work in palliative care, something they will mention is how at the end of a person's life, they often stop eating or drinking. As their body shuts down in the last weeks, they simply don't feel the need to eat or drink anymore. Their body is done. They're moving past it. And for families, this can be a hugely traumatic thing. They may have walked bravely alongside their family member through horrific health journeys over months or years, but when the person stops eating, that's often difficult on a different level. We just understand at some deep soul level how wrong that is, not desiring food or water. When Sebastian was born, our oldest son, he was severely jaundiced. And one thing that became very important in his first weeks of life was that we needed to wake him at night and even during the day to eat. And I remember sitting anxiously in the nursery with Aaron at two in the morning with ice cubes and feathers, tickling and pinching and clapping and bouncing, anything that we could do to get Sebastian to eat. It was a sign of something wrong with him, that he didn't have an interest in eating. It was scary for us as new parents. Something that should be so natural became a huge uphill battle. If we hunger and thirst, that is a sign that things are going right in our bodies, that things are as they should be. So here's the parallel to Jesus' words, and it's a bit of a hard truth. As Christians, as individuals, and together as the church, we should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We should be longing for righteousness in our own lives and in the world around us. And if we aren't, if that is not something that is in us, if we don't feel that need, then it's time to ask some tough questions about our spiritual health. So we've looked at these different aspects of hunger and thirst, and now what I want to do is take a look at the idea of righteousness. And it's significant that Jesus says righteousness here. He doesn't, for example, say heaven. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after heaven. Uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this beatitude, takes note of this choice. And he defines righteousness as wanting to do what is right regardless of personal gain or loss outside of how it can benefit us. And he says this, If there were no heaven, the godly man would wish to be righteous. If there were no hell, the godly man would dread unrighteousness. His hunger and his thirst are after honesty, purity, rectitude, and holiness. Always distinguish between seeking heaven and seeking God, between shunning hell and shunning sin. For any hypocrite will desire heaven and dread hell, but only the sincere hunger after righteousness. The thief would shun the prison, but he would like to be once more at his theft. The murderer would escape the gallows, but he would readily enough have his hand on a dagger again. The desire to be happy, the wish to be at ease in conscience, these are poor things. The true and noble hunger of the soul is the desire to be right for righteousness' sake. To be holy, whether that leads to joy or sorrow. To be pure in heart, whether it brings honor or persecution. This is the blessed thirst. So what is righteousness? 
Righteousness is a big word. It's a big concept. And undoubtedly, when Jesus was preaching, there will have been some in the crowd saying, it's a good thing I'm already so righteous. They will have had a good list of deeds and accolades and references that they could point to to establish their credentials as righteous people. But Jesus works his way through the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, and he turns that idea of righteousness that they will have had on their head as well. Because we are going to be going over these next three Beatitudes over the next weeks, I'm not going to go into terribly much detail here. The emphasis today will be more on the hunger and thirst itself. Uh, And we'll spend the next three weeks looking more directly at how that righteousness is described. But I am going to take a moment or two just to sketch out an idea of what we are heading towards. An idea of what this righteousness looks like. And we're going to go back to our Beatitude ladder. The first three Beatitudes, being poor in spirit, mourning, and being meek, like we said, they set up an emptying of yourself in order to be filled with righteousness. And after that filling, once we have sought righteousness, once we have been filled, the following three Beatitudes show what that life looks like. They show what a life filled with righteousness is characterized by. They show the results of an outpouring of righteousness that comes from filling. And we see mercy, purity, peace. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are the peacemakers. That is what defines righteousness in Jesus' kingdom. And to make sure I'm, way, I'm not way off base in this interpretation, let's jump ahead a little bit in the chapter. I'm going to kind of skim through chapter 5. And Jesus spells it out more clearly as we go. In chapter 5, verse 20... Jesus sort of sets up his point. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives six illustrations to show exactly how our righteousness is supposed to pass the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a practical picture of righteousness in the upside-down kingdom. And take note that each of these things are directly related to one of these. Mercy, pure of heart, or peacemaking. So in verse 21... Uh, And a little further, we see that we must not only not kill, but more we must not sustain anger against a brother, but seek peace. In verses 27 to 30, we must not only not commit adultery, but more we must not look at a person lustfully. In verse 31 to 32, we should not condone divorce just because there is a legal loophole for it, but we must honor our marriage covenants even higher than they did in the Old Testament. In verse 33 to 37, we should not only keep our oaths, but more, we should be the kind of people who don't need to take oaths in order to be believed. In verse 38 to 42, we should not only not poke out an eye because one of ours was poked out, but more, we should turn the other cheek and return good for evil. And in verses 43 to 48, we should not only love our neighbor, but more, we should love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us. We see Jesus drive home these principles, mercy, purity of heart, and peace through these examples. And this is the standard that we aspire to, an impossible standard, as Darren mentioned in the introduction. But blessed are we who hunger and thirst after this. Blessed are we who are relentlessly in pursuit of righteousness, who recognize that our spiritual health is sustained by it, not by law-following, or by mindless sacrifice, but through a transformative relationship with Jesus Christ, through a letting go of the world standards and a pursuit of God. And in closing, I want to talk a little bit about the paradox 
of this verse. A paradox is when two things exist together that should not be able to exist together. And the upside-down kingdom, this idea that Jesus is presenting, is built on paradoxes. Weakness is strength. Mourning is blessed. First is last. Greatest is least. Life through death. But this one always confused me in sort of a special way when I read it. If I hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then I am filled... And the idea of filling here is an overabundance of fullness. It's more than I need. It's more than I could possibly take in. Then how is it that I remain hungry? It feels like a word puzzle. Most of these beatitudes, I think all of them, refer to continuous states of being. It's not a switch that you flip and you're done. It's something that you're continually doing, continually in pursuit of. So how do we stay hungry once we are filled? Are we supposed to? Those of you who are living this parable out, those of you who are spiritually hungry, I think already know the answer to this. That a perfectly complete filling can take place immediately next to and along with a desire for more. Somehow in our lives, in this kingdom, these two ideas that should not exist, that are polar opposites, that are pushing away like two magnets, those two things can hold hands, can join together in the same space. I think we see a great example in the life of Moses, a man close to God, but somebody who always wanted more. And John MacArthur has this to say about Moses' hunger for God. He says, Moses had seen God. Moses, when he was in the wilderness for 40 years, had God call him. And he came, and he saw God in a blazing, burning bush. He had seen God. He saw the glory of God, as it were, blazing in the bush. And God said to him, take your shoes off, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. And later on, when God went back to lead Israel out of that land, he saw God. He saw God's hand in the miracles, the plagues. He saw God when God parted the Red Sea and let them all walk through and then drowned all of the Egyptian army. He saw God as they moved, guided by that great holy glow of God in the heavens. He saw God. He knew what it was to hunger after God and be filled. But you know something? In obedience to God's command, he built a tabernacle. And when the tabernacle was completed, the glory of God came into that place because Moses said to him, God, I want to see your glory. And you might say, Moses, enough is enough, guy. I mean, you really have seen a lot of stuff. And Moses would say, but not enough. God took him into the mountain and God showed him a flaming finger that scratched the law of God into the tablets of stone in the side of a mountain. And when Moses came down, it wasn't enough. And he said, show me your glory. And when he came down, he was lit up. And as the glory began to diminish, he went back up the mountain and looked at God's glory again. And then he came down. And then he went back again. It was never enough. It was never enough. I beseech you, he says, in Exodus 33:18, I beg you, show me your glory. You see, there is this character. This is the character of a son of the kingdom. He is never satisfied. There is an unsatisfaction in the very satisfaction himself. When I think of this paradox, what immediately jumps to mind for me is the ending to the last battle by C.S. Lewis. This is the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. I read these books often as a child, and at the very end of the book, after the battle is complete, the main characters have left Narnia, and they find themselves in a somehow more perfect version of the place they have just left. It looks very much like the land they came from, but it is brighter, and it is more colorful, and it is richer in ways that are indescribable, and somehow everything is just right. 
And they are called to run towards Aslan. Run towards God. And he calls them over and over again, further up and further in. It's a picture of heaven. And they run, and they never get tired or sweaty, and they never feel scared, and they just keep running and swimming and jumping and dancing towards the center of this land. And eventually they come across a gleaming gold entryway, and they think they've arrived. And they enter through the gates, and they find another land. And somehow they find that it is bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. And so they run further up and further in. And as they get closer to Aslan, and as they get closer to Aslan, the world continues to get bigger and more beautiful and more wondrous. And the more they learn, the more they have to discover. And the more they are filled, the more that they can take in. And as we seek after righteousness, and as we hunger and thirst for mercy, for purity, for peace, God promises to to fill us. Know that we will be filled, that we are filled. And God will continue to call us further up and further in. Further up and further in. Into what C.S. Lewis calls a book where every chapter is bigger and better than the one before. Blessed are we who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for we will be filled. Amen. You guys want to stand and sing all who are thirsty?